When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of July 6th, 2014. On this week's show, we'll talk about Neymar's injury, the Dutch goalkeeper's penalty shootout psych-out of Costa Rica, what makes Lionel Messi great, and the upcoming World Cup semis between Brazil and Germany and Argentina and the Netherlands. We'll also be joined by Ben Rothenberg of the New York Times to discuss Novak Djokovic's dramatic five-set win over Roger Federer and other Wimbledon matters. We will all change into white for that segment. And Major League Eating CEO and Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest impresario George Shea will be with us to delve into the past, present, and future of competitive eating. And in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll check in on the latest from NBA Free Agency, and hopefully LeBron James won't announce that he is going to Phoenix five minutes after we finish recording today's show. I'm alone again in Slate's Washington, D.C. studio without even a soft rock ballad to console me. Right, Mike? Curia liaison on the road that I must travel, but no. <laughs> Not even a soft rock ballad, it can tell me. Uh, joining from upstate New York is Stefan Fatsis, the author of the book's Word Freak and a Few Seconds of Panic, the Friday sports correspondent friend Paris All Things Considered. I want to know what love is, Stefan, and I want you to show me. Oh, it was the second part that got me. <laughs> You know, we're not going to get to this in the World Cup conversation, but I read yesterday that Freddie Adu has just received an invitation to train with Azed Alkmaar in the Netherlands. And do you know what that team nickname is? No, they are what? the Cheese Farmers. 
that could be the greatest team nickname of all time. What was the your mental transition between uh, what I said and what you said? There wasn't one. I just wanted to talk about the cheese farmers. <laughs> oh, I thought it was clearly that Mr. Mister is extremely cheesy. That wasn't a Mr. Mister song, but your mental your, 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 your mental transitions will remain a mystery for, for mankind for years to come, Mr. Pesca. Oh, uh, yeah, that's right. Take these broken wings and learn to fly. That's it. Yeah, yeah. You're the host of Slate's Daily Podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pesca, and you can only remember eight uh, soft rock power ballads in your short-term memory at one time. It's the human yeah. capacity. Did you listen to all 150 this week, Mike? Listen, lived a lot of them. I uh, was where the eagle flies, but I, the mountain high. I did that. I was uh, did it. Yeah, did it. Been Killed there. that. Did love lift you up where you belong? Uh huh. I made love out of nothing at all. <laughs> That's a little embarrassing, but <laughs> <laughs> it was a nil nil match. But love emerged. <laughs> That's right. My love went into penalties. Um, Stefan, it's been a week since the U.S. lost to Belgium. It has. I think that we're going to move on from that. We've moved on. Let's move on. I've moved on. We mentioned Freddie Adu. We've moved on. <laughs> All right. I, I just feel like any conversation that we would have about what's uh, going on with the American soccer, is it awesome? Will it be yeah. awesome? Let's move on. You know, how, you know how we've moved on? We've moved on because people are doing the who's going to be on the 2018 U.S. World Cup team. And most of the predictions include like 15 or 16 of the guys that were on this World Cup team. I predict that there will not be 15 of the current players on the 2018 team. That's my prediction. Well, Stefan, there, there are really two different World Cup tournaments. So let's focus on World Cup Part 2. The opening round, the round-robin phase, there are 136 goals in 48 games. That was an all-time record, 2.8 per match. In the 12 games since the knockout round, there have been just 23 goals, 1.9 per match. Um, that decrease makes sense because there are fewer mismatches. Um, you don't have your Honduras uh, to kick around anymore, weeded out the weaker teams. But it also seems like teams have been playing more cautiously, um, hesitant to go forward, lest the opponent um, could attack themselves, could you know have an easier run of it. Then there's the fouling. Uh, tournament high 54 fouls in Brazil, Colombia, the most consequential of which came late in the game when uh, Colombia's Juan Camilo Zuniga need Neymar in the back, fracturing one of his vertebrae, knocking the 22-year-old Brazilian out of the tournament. The betting markets have responded by reducing the host chances. Brazil, Germany, and Argentina now considered co-favorites to win the World Cup, which will make for an exciting semifinal round. Um, but the Neymar injury, Brazilians are not happy. Nobody seems happy about this. Can you walk us through the actions that led up to it? Uh, Sam Borden in the New York Times was kind of pursuing a blame the victim um, analysis, saying that it was Brazil that had really taken the initiative to just be very aggressive and the ref didn't control it. And then what happened, you know, in, in Act 3, the gun goes off and Neymar gets injured. Uh, Bobby McMahon, writing on Forbes, went back and watched the match and he seemed to think that the initial assessment that Brazil were the hooligan instigators on the field was exaggerated. My emotional reaction was that this was all Brazil playing, hey, cynical soccer, that they were deliberately fouling James Rodriguez, Colombia's star who had scored six goals in the previous games, that they were attacking Every run that Colombia seemed to make with an intentional trip from behind, a little bit of a, a cleat studs on the boots, studs on the, on, the, on the shin, 
Um, it seemed like Brazil, for reasons that you know weren't exactly clear, um, but maybe sort of fit in with the the explanation of what you have to do to win in a knockout round at the World Cup, or how you might choose to play in a knockout round at the World Cup. That Brazil, either you know, feeling that they couldn't do what we expect Brazil to do, so that this was the, how they were going to choose to win, played extremely dirty, ugly, cynical soccer. And, you know, Colombia seemed to be the retaliators. The the play-by-play breakdown seemed to show that Colombia did some of the early fouling, but none of it struck me as sort of as deliberate or egregious as what Brazil resorted to, particularly in the first 20 to 30 minutes of the second half. And whether that led to the foul on Neymar, it's hard to tell. I mean, again, watching that foul in real time, Zuniga got up really high. One knee was uh, one knee was elevated. Neymar's back was to him. The ball was in front of him. They were losing one to nothing. It's hard to know how intentional or why you would even deliberately go after Neymar in that way at that stage in the game. It's certainly plausible that he was just going for the ball. Nobody in Brazil believes that though. I was watching the game too saying, wow, these are a lot of fouls and a lot of people claiming that there is no foul going on. I mean, no one copped to anything. And, you know, there are a couple of tells. Like, I kind of thought Neymar was hurt because he did the classic clutch the actual body part instead of cover the face. Now when he was being stretchered off with a concave stretcher, not the little World War One jobby. So I think that might have been more serious. I don't know if that's a tell. Yeah, with a, with a broken back, probably not the best stretcher to use in the event <laughs> yeah, of a broken vertebrae, but whatever. I know. Go ahead. Basically, the World Cup is good with the bullshit stretcher. <laughs> they're, they're great but with But when that. somebody really gets hurt? Yeah. <laughs> they're good with the set dressing pantomime stretcher. They're they got that one nailed. But um, it did also seem the Colombians were playing the ball and grabbing the Brazilians' shoulders and dragging them down at every possible interval. And there's another tell for me, which is when a guy falls to the ground, if the defender raises his hands like I didn't touch him, he touched him. You never do that when you don't actually touch him. You don't think to raise your hands when you're not touching a guy. So I really think that uh, the referees could benefit from, I don't know, maybe there's a way to use, not even replay in the moment, but to kind of assess you know, who's been who's been making it up along the way, give the referee that information at halftime, allow him to adjust accordingly. And it seemed it's such it's just such a huge, huge deal, not just because of the Neymar injury. That whole game was skill first, ability to get away with fouls second. And they were a pretty close one too. There's no reason that the Colombian player would intentionally injure Neymar in that moment. Not intentionally like injure, but foul intent. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it seemed like a freak accident everyone coming down on him like he did something that you know 12 other players didn't do in that game i think is a yeah, little going ridiculous. up high for a for a head for a challenged head ball is not unusual sure um the referee in that game uh carlos velasco carballo is coming in for a lot of criticism for not giving out cards um and the way that cards are given out in in soccer seven it seems pretty capricious um they're used to control the game so the idea is if he had you know, booked Fernandinho, the Brazilian who was fouling a lot in the first half, that would have sent a message, you know, through uh, through the like color telepathy that, you know, this was not to be tolerated. Um, but he didn't do that. And so the players can need a foul with impunity. Do you think that that's correct? And do you think that there is a certain art to card management that this referee failed? Totally. And, and I think that refs have to be aware of card situations coming into matches like these because FIFA's rules are so weird and 
and punitive. I mean, the second yellow car accumulated over the course of this tournament in a quarterfinal match miss, means that you miss the semifinals. Um, that happened to Tiago Silva of of Brazil for his incredibly stupid yellow card when he ran in front of the Colombian keeper while the keeper was about to punt the ball. So card management, I think, does affect how players behave going forward. And if an early yellow card or two will help to set a tone for the match and maybe restrict the kinds of persistent fouling that we saw that really, to me, sort of made me not like Brazil and maybe not want them to go forward in this tournament as a fan. Uh, well, they say the same in college uh, basketball, sometimes professional basketball also, that you got the ref- it's up to the referee to set the tone early. It seems a little bit logical. I do question the automatic two yellow cards makes you suspended for the next game. I mean, it just has such a disproportionate effect. A red card is a huge deal, and there's actually a pretty good uh, Wikipedia site that lists every red card in the, red- in the World Cup history. So, so far this World Cup, there have been 10 red cards. In 2010, there were 17 red cards, and they do count yellows that become reds as well. That, you know, counts as a red card. So this was more of a happy-go-lucky tournament in the opening round, which kind of makes sense. Um, You know, things have gotten more serious, more intense, more foully. Um, Let's also talk about the Netherlands-Costa Rica game, which saw a couple of interesting strategic moves. Mike, let's play a round of that's gamesmanship, can we? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, the Dutch goalkeeper comes on four penalties after extra time. The coach, Louis van Gaal, decided that Tim Krul was going to be his designated penalty stopper. This yeah. guy s- seemed to evince absolutely no ability to stop penalties during his club career. But nevertheless, he's tall. Um, yeah. and it seemed to work. Um, and yeah. part of the reason that uh, maybe it worked is that he went up to all of the Costa Rican players before they took their penalties and said, I know you're going to you know, shoot it to the left or I know you're going to shoot it to the right. He went up and, you know, basically psyched them out or tried to psych them out. And, yeah. you know, at least the results would suggest that it works. So do, you, do we think that's gamesmanship or poor sportsmanship? Okay, there's a lot going on. First of all, does Cruel speak Spanish? <laughs> that was my first question. Or do the Costa Ricans speak Walloon? <laughs> they don't. Second there's of no all. Walloon language, Seven. but <laughs> Flemish. Second of all, the coach, uh, he used the Dunleavy strategy. Guy's got good length. That was it. He's 6'4". He's got long arms. That's all we need. Third of all, I haven't done the total math. I'm sure there's a Wikipedia site about this. Does seem to me that the majority of missed penalties are actually missed wide, right? Or high. Not actually saved. So... You know, Cruel saved the penalties. It worked out not only by luck. It, you could say, like, you know, Cruel was in goal, and then the Costa Ricans put it wide. No, they tried to put it in the corner of the nets, and Cruel saved them all. It was unbelievable. And I'll also say this. My advice, because I'm an excellent penalty taker, is usually don't aim for the exact corner. But that advice was ignored by the Netherlands. Or maybe they were aiming for the middle third and just managed to put every single ball within an inch of the post. Two, I think two of their five corners hit the side netting. Which is incredible. And the goalie was, goaltender, was diving in the right direction most of the time. So that's an example. And it was thought that penalties were merely random. And I think uh, 538 is showing that some teams are better at penalties. And Netherlands Netherlands had not, they didn't get lucky in the penalties. They were had much more skilled penalty kicks and penalty saving. 
So are we suggesting that Tim Kroll is a secret Belgian? Because I'm just realizing that he's Dutch and would have no reason to be speak Flemish. That's also, the games. That's the extent of the gamesmanship. He's using the Dutch other languages. So that many no- languages. He probably also speaks Flemish. Mike, I think you also forgot to mention that it's been a cruel summer for the Netherlands. Oh, yeah. And, and that move, he had to be cruel to be kind. I think he should have worn a jersey that said designated penalty specialist. DP. Because it is so psychological. Um, it's, it's not a very difficult task to make a penalty. I think everyone believes and acknowledges that it's more of a mental thing than a physical one. So I think part of the strategy of the Dutch manager, which is smart, is just even if this guy is not actually a designated penalty stopper, just bring him in at that moment because it makes it seem like you have this genius strategy. And then when the guy comes up to you and just starts talking shit in Flemish, then you don't even know what to think. I think it's like it's since it's all mind games, approaching it as 100 percent a mind game seems like an intelligent thing to do. He had saved two of his last 20 penalties with Newcastle in the last five years. So no, not exactly a penalty specialist, but absolutely penalties are all about a mental state. And, you know, he did guess the right way on all five of the Costa Rican kicks. He moved in the correct direction and he didn't jump early. He actually, he actually defended the penalties in a legitimate legal way. Um, but all you need to rattle a penalty taker is to get inside his head to create some tiny moment of doubt. And the Costa Rican players have been playing for 120 minutes. How about just the fact that they're going up against a guy who's been resting for the entirety of the game. And that's got to creep into your mind too. Like, oh my God, fresh keeper. Maybe he's going to dive an extra six inches because his legs aren't tired. Can we also talk about the Costa Rica offsides trap in that game? (laughs) They caught the Netherlands 13 times, 41 times total in the competition with the offsides trap. The next uh, best is Germany with 17, the Netherlands and Argentina with 10. It is hard to come up with an analogy for the offside trap, the best that I can, or the offside trap, the best that I could come up with is like it's in tug of war when one team just decides to drop the rope and the other <laughs> team just falls down. I think it's more like the uh, the runner on third dances inducing the balk. And imagine that... a game. Imagine a game with thirteen balks. Now that's a game. <laughs> but it's just the the uh, teamwork involved. It, that you're, like Costa Rica seemed to have spent a lot more time practicing just standing all in a straight line than they did act- passing the ball to each other. I mean, yeah. it worked for them and got them to the to the quarterfinals. But just the you know you have drawing a charge in basketball, but you don't have all five players drawing a charge simultaneously. Maybe the Spurs will develop that in uh, 2015. Synchronized soccer. No, a ha- uh, big hand clap for, for Costa Rica, by the way, for getting this far. And, you know, we talked earlier about the, the lower scoring in the, in the round of 16 in the quarterfinals. But a lot of that is the knowledge that if you can get to penalties, you have a 50-50 chance of, of winning the game. Um, Costa Rica and Greece sort of slogged their way to penalties. Uh, the U.S. certainly would have been thrilled to have gotten to penalties. I mean, that game was 0-0 after 90 minutes. You know, Argentina over the weekend, same thing. Belgium would have been delighted to have gotten to penalties at that stage. So there is more caution and more sort of defensive soccer being played in these rounds out of fear and the knowledge that, hey, if we can slog our way through against the superior team, we're going to have a chance. And Costa Rica kind of did that to perfection. I mean, they, they played great in the, in, the, in the first round of the tournament against three 
strong soccer sides, Uruguay, England, and Italy. And then they figured, hell, let's like defend our way and offsides trap our way, offside trap our way to the semifinals. And they almost pulled it off. I think that they took notes on the Greeks who played their own cynical soccer. They did not play cynical soccer. They played defensive soccer. The sin-offensive soccer of the Greeks uh, rubbed off on the uh, Costa Ricans. I did not want the Costa Ricans to advance, actually, even though they're the Los Ticos are the plucky underdogs. I don't think it's right f- to advance twice, especially twice in a row on penalties. Um, let's, that seems wrong. Um, let's finish up with talk of Lionel Messi. He is the superstar left in this tournament. Cristiano Ronaldo is gone. Neymar out injured. James Rodriguez has gone back to Colombia. A triumphant hero, but Messi's still around. Four goals in five games for Argentina, trying to take his country to its first World Cup title since Maradona um, willed and hand of Godded his squad to the 86 championship. Ken Early wrote a great piece for Slate about watching Messi off the ball um, in their quarterfinal against Belgium and how little he moves. This can go both ways, right? If they lose and you have your best player just kind of standing there waiting for things to happen— um, then, you know, that's not going to be perceived as a, a particularly great game for him. But when they score the one goal, when they win, when they continue to move on, just the economy of his movement, the fact that he does so little and yet controls the game. It's really, I, I watched him during the Belgium game as well. It is really transfixing just to stare and watch this guy and how just quick bursts. And he just really seems like he's not doing as much as anyone else. Yet it's just the entire game revolves around this guy. It's also, it's also those tiny little steps he takes. Tiny little steps because he's tiny, messy. And, but that is part of it. I mean, he is completely aware of everything that's going around him and understands that economizing his energy is probably the best way for him to explode and dominate and take on three or four or more defenders when he needs to do it. I mean, it's just incredibly smart, and it reflects his remarkable vision for how the game is played. You know, obviously there's someone on the pitch who, and listen to me saying pitch, who moves less than Messi, and that's the goalkeeper, but no one would want the goalkeeper to move, and that's how we should view these guys, these great strikers. Dempsey moves the least on the U.S. team. And, you know, to bring it back to the U.S., Coming into the World Cup, it was seen that the Argentines obviously had a great player and great scorers, but the def- defense was a weakness of the team. But especially, I think in soccer, more than other sports, offense creates defense or helps the defense. And so the whole thing about the true statement that Tim Howard looked so great and saving so many shots, but the downside of that is that he had to face so many shots, and then it was said because the U.S. defense wasn't good. I think the U.S. defense was fine. It never had possession and put any pressure and took the ball up the other end of the pitch. And that's, I think, what the Argentines do so well and why all these games that Argentina is winning are very low-score games and they only need one score because they keep the pressure off their defense by guys like Messi being so uh, exciting and potent as soon as they take the ball up to the other side. You know, I I like the new emphasis on statistics. I like when a guy comes out of the game, they tell you how much he's run compared to the average. I like the possession statistics, but all of these are not misleading, but there are shadings and there's different types of possession, possession in your zone, possession in their zone. And I think Argentina is, you know, kind of emphasizing or maximizing their strengths and doing a great job dealing with uh, what's perceived, what was perceived to be their weakness. 
there's also different kinds of running. There's purposeful running and less so, and there's also going to be more running from certain positions. I mean, Michael Bradley ran the most of any player in any game so far in the World Cup, I think, and Lionel, Lionel Messi doesn't do that. I mean, it's certainly not reflective of how good each of them is. It might be, to some degree, effect, reflective of how effective each of them is. But back to Messi for a second. The other terrific story that people should read was by Benjamin Morris on 538.com. He looked at every statistic available to analyze Messi shooting and scoring production, where he shoots from, um, how often he sets up his own shots, how what kind of kicks he takes, his passing, how often he creates scoring chances, how often he creates scoring chances that lead to goals, how often he converts, and he char- plotted all this stuff. It is insane. He is a complete outlier to every other great player in soccer. And Ronaldo's bubble is up there, too, but it's not even, you know, in many of these statistics, it's not even close to Messi. It is one of the most ridiculous examples of an athlete being superior to his peers, his incredibly great peers, that I've ever seen. Well, it's like the Tiger Woods graphs when he was at the top of his game. Um, He is, uh, you know what that means, Stefan. He's heading for a a fire hydrant? (laughs) I didn't say it. All right, an update on the Hang Up and Listen World Cup Bracket Challenge. Andy73573, that could be a zip code, or maybe he's sending us a secret message. Uh, But he's moved past reluctant cynic and is in first place. He's got Argentina over Germany in the final. And in the just as important uh, secret challenge within a challenge, Josh Levine is leading Mike Pesca uh, and Stefan Fatsis likes Spain to win it all after coming through a tough semifinal with Bosnia-Herzegovina. Wait, who likes Spain to win it all? You? <laughs> no, that's Stefan. He likes. Oh, Did Stefan. I pick Bosnia to make it to the semis? Yeah, but Spain's going to be tested, and you know, before going into the final, they're going to have come through the wars with Bosnia Herzegovina. Yeah. So, who do you have, Josh? I had uh, Brazil. Oh, I have Brazil. Damn, I can't gain ground on you, can I? Maybe you can. We'll right. see. Maybe I have Germany. You have then. sneaky ways. Let's also put in a word to subscribe to our membership program, Slate Plus. It costs just five dollars a month. You can do so at slate.com slash hangupplus. And one of the things you'll get with your membership is an extra segment each week on this podcast and other Slate podcasts. Also, if you're following the Slate Plus account on Instagram, you would know that my boss, David Plot, sent the following email at 5.04 p.m. last Tuesday. And I quote, if you are using a lot of bandwidth now, please stop. We need to stream this game. And then the body of the message said, basically, stop working. This is... Uh, the work environment at Slate on a Tuesday during the World Cup. Uh, David Plotz, Slate Plus, $5 a month, slate.com slash plus. Before this year, the last five-set final at Wimbledon came in 2009 when Roger Federer beat Andy Roddick 16-14 in the fifth, breaking the American for the first and only time in the final game of the match. The year before that, Federer lost to Rafael Nadal 9-7 in the fifth in what many call the greatest match in the history of the game. The year before that, Federer beat Nadal 6-2 in the fifth to secure his sixth straight Wimbledon. On Sunday, Federer's record dropped to 2-2 in five-set Wimbledon finals as he lost 6-4 to Novak Djokovic in the final set in a match that was both dramatic and fantastically well-played. Joining us to talk about it is Ben Rothenberg of the New York Times. Hello, Ben. Hi, Josh. You were there. Let's start with the drama of that men's final. Uh, Djokovic saved match points to beat Federer two years in a row at the U.S. Open, uh, 10 and 11, I think. Um, For a time, it looked like Federer was going to return the favor in this match. 
he saved his match point with an ace on a replay challenge in the fourth set, which is a very modern uh, twist. He won the last five games of that set to take it 7-5. Um, so describe for us what it was like at Wimbledon in those moments. Federer on center court, huge crowd support. It seemed like this was going to be the return of the king. Um, and then the fifth set happened. Everything was so set up for Roger Federer to win this and for it to be one of the greatest finals of all time. I mean, when he when he saved that championship point with the ace in the fourth set and then went on to win that set from down 5-2, it really seemed like history was conspiring in the entire crowd. Seriously, there were probably only about 50 people out of the 15,000 that were rooting for Djokovic in the entire stadium. And everyone seemed ready for Federer to win. He would have been the oldest Wimbledon champion ever. Uh, he's beloved everywhere he goes. And this really felt like a triumphant sort of happy swan song moment until it got to four all in the fifth and he played a loose service game and lost and it was over. And Djokovic won and Djokovic has the respect of a lot of people, but I don't think he's really connected quite the way that Roger has with uh, people's imagination. That's because Federer's won seven of these and people love him and the dignity and the grace and the style and it seemed like he really did change his strategy, his tactics, to try to make a run for this championship in particular. I read a couple of stories. Uh, 538's Carl Bialik had a great story in which he analyzed how much more Federer was serving and volleying in this tournament compared to, to recent years. Like, crazy. Like, 23% of his service points through the quarterfinals, uh, half the rate back in 2003, but nearly seven times uh, as much as he was doing just three years ago. Did you notice this sort of really strategic rethinking of his own game? Definitely. And I think that back in 2003, the grass court was playing a lot faster than it does now. And it also was a lot less even. So you get more bad bounces, which made coming to net and not giving the chance the ball a chance to bounce um, a much smarter play and going in Djokovic is probably hits the best passing shot from the game is where this tactic was under the most fire but in the first six matches before that Federer had a lot of success with it a lot of people thought that the servant volley might be something that came into his game more when he hired Stefan Edberg as his coach because obviously that was a huge tenant of Edberg's game back when it servant volley was a more prominent tactic in the 80s and it really has paid dividends as players like Federer get older, the impetus to shorten points is huge, and Servan Volley does that, and it also throws a lot of players a, just a look they aren't used to facing. Yeah, your colleague Harvey Arredin noted that, that Federer had the balls in the eighth game of the fifth set to come in behind a 98-mile-per-hour second service. That's pretty good. I mean, when you, when you do it that fearlessly, and it can almost feel a little bit kamikaze at times when you're following up that kind of shot, it can put a lot of doubts in the other guy's head, even if that guy is uh, top seed like Djokovic. Well, let me talk about how good Federer looked in that match, kind of as a way of complimenting Djokovic. You have watched uh, Federer play a lot more in recent years than any of us, but I really thought it was the best match he I had seen him play in many, many years, and that includes his run to the Wimbledon final in 2012. So in the kind yeah. of Federer decline phase, you often see him you know, not converting break points, showing a kind of mental frailty um, in crucial games. And there was absolutely none of that in this match. He played amazingly well on the key points, on break points. He served as well as I'd seen him serve, some people said, since that erotic match at Wimbledon. And yet, Djokovic won the match. So that, you know, shows how great Federer was. But also, um, you know, this might have been the best accomplishment of Djokovic's career. He hasn't beaten Nadal 
at the French. So beating Federer at Wimbledon when it seemed preordained and when Djokovic seemed at times to be falling apart, that is a pretty huge win for him. I agree. He completely turned the tides of that fifth set against the crowd and against all the momentum Federer had. And absolutely, Federer hasn't looked this good in years. I mean, Federer, like you said, when he won in 2012, he beat Djokovic in the semis and then Murray in the final. But neither was quite as transcendent as this match, I don't think, and quite as vintage. And he really, really looked like he was ready to make that breakthrough uh, today. And yeah, like I said before, the stage was set. The script seemed all but written. It just twist ending at the end sort of spoiled it for everyone. And Djokovic um, talked candidly before and after the match about losing, I think, three straight major finals made him question, you know, his mental state and whether he really was strong enough, tough enough to win these matches, which was bizarre to me because this is the guy who won a six-hour match against Nadal in Australia, which was maybe the most mentally and physically grinding match in all of tennis ever, Um, maybe except for Isner Mahout. Um, He also, you know, as I talked about at the top, saved match points against Federer uh, at the U.S. Open. This guy is not a guy who's mentally weak, and yet tennis um, drove him to feel this way about himself. No, it's absolutely true. And the fact is, he did lose three of his his last three Grand Slam finals, and I think five of the last six as well. And so he was getting to these big stages and coming up short. I mean, he was looking for a while like he would have had the number one ranking without being the defending champ at any of the four slams, which doesn't happen almost ever on the men's tour. It's happened a few times on the women's, women who have never won them, but it's pretty unheard of with the way the ATP rankings are set up. And especially, I think, last year in New York against Nadal, it's probably a match that Djokovic wishes he could have back. At Wimbledon last year against Andy Murray, he was playing against 77 years of British desperation, and obviously there were a lot of other factors that went into that. I just don't think he was satisfied with his play on these... Uh, big stages, and it was getting to a bit of a crisis point for him, and I think that's why a large part of why he brought on Boris Becker, to sort of with help with that big match experience, even though he did it at a time when he was on a 20-match win streak at smaller tournaments and really didn't need any major, major tweaks in this game. And we talk about crisis points for this guy. He's competing in the most competitive era at the highest level of tennis. Um, he's got a terrific Grand Slam winning percentage. Um, he's already won, what is it, seven now? And he's only 27. And 27 is not start- is starting to not feel very old at the higher uh, echelons of men's tennis the way it might have a few years ago. No, I completely agree. And I think it just shows sort of the ridiculous inflation of this era where you have two guys who are his main peers at the top of the game, Federer with 17 slams and Nadal with 14. Uh, Djokovic has now seven, which is only half of Nadal, but it's as many as someone like John McEnroe has, and McEnroe is considered an all-time great. And I don't think many people spit out Djokovic's name quite as quickly in those sort of conversations. So I just think that he's really unlucky with perceptions of himself and from the public just into this era in which he was unlucky enough to be born into. So the number one question, and this is indicative of tennis, is not about who won, but what the hell's going on with Serena Williams? Was Martina Navratilova right to criticize her? Was she talking out of her hat? Hat's not really allowed at Wimbledon, but visors are. And uh, (laughs) am I wrong to think that this is the most important or interesting question on the women's side? Quick sidebar on the hats. Princess Eugenie, who came in the royal box, is known for her extravagant hats, apparently. And they don't <laughs> let you wear them in the royal box because they would block someone's view, which I thought was interesting. Great hat talk. Serena, um, <laughs> Hot hat talk. Yeah, hat talk, indeed. Hat takes. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think anyone really knows with Serena. And I don't, obviously, 
it was an unfortunate situation for people like Pam Shriver and Chris Everett, who were live on air on ESPN when this match started unfolding the way it did, with Serena showing no discernible hand-eye coordination and all these other very surprising things. This was the doubles um, match where she done. ended up. This was the doubles match where she ended up pulling out um, after losing in right. the third round of the singles. Right. And yeah, so this match, she only lasted three games. She was looking, had trouble during the warm-up, even just catching balls that were thrown to her by the ball kids, even just bouncing the ball a few times before taking practice serves. And yeah, Martina said basically that she didn't uh, know that Serena should have been let on the court in that condition, which I think is hard to argue with on some level. If people saw what a shambly state Serena was in through illness or whatever, someone probably should have said, Serena, why would you go out there? Should have pulled the ripcord on that situation. And I've heard discussions now that the WTA is looking to change the rules to give itself a little bit more stopping power, like a referee in a boxing match, and be able to declare someone unfit to compete uh, and sort of pull them off the court if there ever is a situation like this again. Because prior to this, there had never been really any comparable uh, scenario that I can think of. Yeah, it seems odd to come up with a rule for something that probably won't happen again. <laughs> yeah. But hey, if you want to come up with rules, uh, go go nuts, WTA. Um, so Serena goes out in the third round, and when that happens, it seems like the rest of the field must, uh, you know, throw their invisible hats in the air. It's just like uh, a party at the All England Club. Petra Kvitova end, ends up coming through and winning. Um, she won Wimbledon in 2011, had really not done anything since. And then in the final against uh, Eugenie Bouchard, who was not wearing a hat, along with Princess Eugenie, um, Kvitova just absolutely mm-hmm. destroyed her. It was insane. Like Bouchard didn't even play that badly. She just couldn't get a, a shot back. It's hard to reconcile those two things, but it's true. Um, so what is the deal with Kvitova? Why had she not done anything in the three years since Wimbledon, and why does she look just unbeatable now? That's a great question. I hope, A lot of people really hoped that she would be able to sustain the form she showed in 2011, which was not quite as untouchable as what she showed in the women's final this year, but was approaching that on some level. And she got up to number two in the rankings, was within, I think, a few matches, more wins of getting to the number one ranking in 2012, early 2012, and since fell off. I mean, she's had problems with asthma and with various illnesses. She's fallen sick to at inopportune times in big tournaments. She was in the quarterfinals of Wimbledon last year when there was almost nobody left in the draw. And she had a very easy path uh, to what looked like a pretty safe title and then just got sick midway through her quarterfinal and couldn't really muster her best. So I think a lot of people hope that she can get this together and sustain it. Um, Has she read Novak Djokovic's diet now? I don't know. That's a good question. I know they were photographed together at the Champions Ball, so hopefully they exchanged some uh, reading uh, tips for each other because he definitely has a lot of thoughts on that. Clearly, all the players had to read the 10-part decree from Wimbledon's officials. What are they called? Do they have a name, the Wimbledon officials? Wimbledon Kratz? Um, about white clothing. White does not include off-white or cream, you report. A single trim of color no wider than one centimeter is permitted. What prompted the uh, this sort of return to the 1920s or maybe 1880s? Yeah, the tipping point, as far as I could see, was this orange sole shoes that Roger Federer wore last year, <gasps> uh, which were totally white, except for just had orange soles on the bottom. I know, gas. And uh, after the first match where he wore them, the Wimbledon organizers uh, told him not to wear them anymore and made him change into all-white shoes for the next match. Nike was sort of very proud of itself for being rebellious and put out a big poster with a picture of the shoes that said, One Match Wonder, 
which wound up being pretty inopportune because better lost in the second round last year. <laughs> and uh, so it was a bit of unlucky prediction for them there. And I think that, Mike, uh, that Wimbledon just didn't want to make itself uh, a place where designers could get attention by bending the rules anymore and really, really sort of swung probably way too far in the other direction, uh, setting rules that really were never that strict to begin with. I mean, back in, if you look at the pictures of the 70s and 80s and 90s, there were huge patches of color and colored headbands and stuff like that on all the Wimbledon outfits. I mean, in the classic Borg McEnroe matches, they each had, you know, navy blue and red on their shirts and things like that. So they were trying to return to a time that never existed. And I understand why they want to stop some of the bending of the rules, but this seemed like a massive, massive overreaction as far as I could tell. You know, my take on this whole thing is I kind of like that Wimbledon is fussy because they're fussy and they're snobbish, but... You know, it's it's a little annoying, but it's kind of a funny anachronism as opposed to FIFA that are stuffy and annoying, <laughs> but there's this underpinning of, you know, true corruption and some horrible stuff. Whereas Wimbledon is just, eh, we're trying to uh we're trying to hold on to whatever piece of the empire we well, can. Well it's more like the masters without the kind of uh, patina of slavery over it. Yeah, it, uh, there's no there's yeah. no deeper evil involved in this kind of anachronistic uh, uh, bitchiness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't find it that unappealing either. I mean, there's something weird about all navy blue tennis outfits, anyway. I mean, I guess it does sort of skirt a line when these when the Wimbledon people are telling Martina Navratilova that she has to change a skirt she's wearing because it's got a pale blue stripe on it when she's competing in like some individual what was it invitational doubles uh, match. Yeah, that's the Legends doubles. Essentially, she was in. Yeah, and she was making the point that a lot of the clothing, including some of her own, which is currently enshrined in the Wimbledon Museum, would no longer be allowed to be worn under these new rules, and she doesn't understand how that has anything to do with upholding tradition, which I understand on some level. Although, like you said, the Wimbledon strictness is totally harmless. They come from a place of just sort of fussiness. Right, it's very English. It's like weird, eccentric Englishism. Well, let's burn that museum down. I think that's the solution to all of our problems. (laughs) But with only white (laughs) flames. Um, Let's end the conversation, Ben, with a talk about the future of American tennis. And for the first time... And perhaps a long time, there is actually hope. Uh, it's not that any uh, men, American men at Wimbledon, actually did well. That would be asking too much. Um, but in the boys' singles, uh, there were two Americans in the final, Noah Rubin and Stefan Kozlov. There was another one in the semis, Taylor Harry Fritz. Sounds like he would fit right in at Wimbledon. Francis Tiafo was another American, was the number one seed in the boys' singles. Is this like a cavalry coming to save American men's tennis or the fact that, you know, there aren't really any top teenagers in the men's game at this point. Is it just too far away, um, any of these guys from making an impact for us to even know or say whether they'll have any uh, effect on the American men's futility? Yeah, I think it's all of the above, really. I think that obviously having seven in the round of 16 like they did is can't be a negative thing for the future American men's tennis. And some of the more highly touted ones, the Francis Tiafo and Michael Moe, in particular, are both 16 years old and didn't make it past that round, but will likely be peaking later in the juniors. And, yeah, it does take a long time, a long, long time for people to break through now at the pro level. Nick Kyrgios of Australia made the quarters as a 19-year-old and beat Rafael Nadal en route, and that was considered absolutely unheard of and shocking in this era where people tend to peak in their late 20s. So 
early returns are good. It probably doesn't mean anything for the next four years, honestly, but it's better than not having the strong crop coming up. So Tiafo and Mo are the two uh, best up-and-comers? Tiafo, Mo, and Kozlov are all, I think, born in 1998, and they kind of group them by birth year. And those are the three who are, I think, seen as being the biggest prospects. Noah Rubin, who won, who won the boys' title, 18 already, and going to play college tennis, and two years older than Kozlov, who he beat in the final. So I'm not sure, sometimes with these adolescents at different stage of their uh, growth, it doesn't always seem like a fair fight in juniors. Um, he's probably not quite as highly touted a prospect at this point as those other three. But there are more people. Uh, actually, Fritz is also in that group of 16-year-olds. So the future could be bright. It's just really far away, and I'm not sure how patient people are. Um, I'm not patient, Ben, but thank you for uh, <laughs> for being with us. Um, and I neglected to mention at the top, uh, you do the No Challenges Remaining podcast on Tennis Matters. Everybody should listen to it. Um, is that a weekly situation? It's weekly to bi-weekly, depending on travel. We try to do it as much as possible. All right. We'll check it out and check out Ben's writing in the New York Times. Thanks for being with us, Ben. Thanks, guys. All right. Let's move on to uh, the greatest sporting events in America or anywhere else over the last month. Um, and that is the Nathan's Famous Hot Dog Eating Contest. On Friday in Coney Island, Joey Jaws Chestnut went for his eighth title, an unprecedented eighth title. Here's how the world's best competitive eater was introduced. Only moments from her womb. And before she even placed him to her breast, his mother held him close and whispered in his ear. She said, you are of my flesh, but you are not mine own. Fate is your father, and you belong to the people. For you shall lead the army of the free. And she held him high, and the finger of power that destroys the unworthy descended. And it touched him on the forehead, and it anointed him the champion of the world, of now and of always. Of the 4th of July, of the nation, of the free, under God! The seven-time Nathan's famous champion of the world! Ladies and gentlemen, let me hear it! The man making that introduction was George Shea, the CEO of Major League Eating, and the public relations marvel behind the Nathan's Contest. George, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Um, so Joey Chestnut won for the eighth time in a row. He ate 61 hot dogs in 10 minutes, ate off his own record. He was pushed by 22-year-old, 120-pound Matt Megatoad Stoney, who finished just three behind Chestnut. I'm going to guess, George, that in your view, this was the greatest uh, contest in Nathan's history. I would, I would say it is certainly among them. You know, one thing that struck me was, and then we've had some ties, and we've had when Joey beat Kobayashi years ago. I mean, those were there were tears of joy in Coney Island, and they were my tears. But, but this was really a surprise to me that Stoney could come this close to Joey at really the peak of Joey's prowess. What was also very interesting to me was the crowd reaction because I spoke to my wife afterwards. She was with in a group full of young kids, and they were all chanting "Stony, Stony, Stony." They wanted to win, um, but in Coney Island, they were very much going for Joey. I was shocked that he was that close for that long. Different viewing parties around the world are going to have different opinions. You know, everyone has their enclave. 
Well, yeah, and but you know what? The the interesting thing is, and this is I'm not an expert on this, but people get stuck on a champion. They get connected to a champion and invested in a champion, and then after a while, maybe they say, okay, I've been invested in that champion too long. I'm I'm going to go with the underdog or something like this. There's a psychological arc and sort of journey that people go through, whether it's LeBron or whoever it is, and it's it's just interesting to see that. With Joey, but but I will say this: there was just no doubt in the crowd they wanted Joey. Yeah, quickly, underdog, hot dog. Give me a pun on that. Underdog, hot dog. Okay, there you go. I wasn't even trying. I don't go for puns. Puns produce groans, and oh. so in the audience, so I steer clear. But eating I, sixty I, I, hot I dogs that, also produces that groans. Stoney is clearly the future of eating. He really is. Where did this guy come from, Stoney? He's from San Jose, and you know he's a rookie out of the asparagus circuit, just like Joey was. He he beat Joey several years ago in asparagus and shocked Joey. And if you think about it, his physical stature is such that it, it must make it very difficult for him to compete against Joey, because Joey's probably like 6'1", big guy, big shoulders, big frame, Matt Stoney 130, and very slight. So that just physically, it, it's a, I think it's a whole different exercise for him. So let's take a step back here, George. Um, my understanding is that Nathan's, the Nathan's contest was... Um, an account that you had um, way back um, for a long time with your uh, PR firm and that you guys, you and your brother, uh, built this into the competitive eating circuit that it is today. So can you take us back to the very first time when you kind of took on the Nathan's contest and and what it was then and what you saw in it? Yeah, so I joined two sort of Coney Island, New York City press agents out of college, you know, sort of with, with zero direction in my life and just sort of backed into a job. And um, they were extremely funny guys. One of their accounts had always been Nathan's. And one of the events that they did was the 4th of July hot dog eating contest. So in 88, I was down on the Jersey Shore literally until 2 or 3 a.m. And I have to tell you, you know, misbehaving and, and just sort of like... Uh, Howling at the moon, and then I and then I came back um, and and went straight to the contest, and it was like a hundred degrees, and I was a judge at that point, so it was an extremely uh, arduous kind of day for me, to put it mildly. But then what happened is I really got into it, and Max Rosie, which was one of the guys who really ran it, died in 1991, and I took it over, and then in '93 we found the coveted mustard yellow belt that was returned to the U.S., and that really popped things. What happened was. The belt, according to archives, had been lost in Japan, and then it was returned. And when it was returned, the Japanese sent three guys to win it back because they were embarrassed it had been uh, lost to the U.S. again. And then they did win it back, and then it began the rivalry. And then what happened was in the 90s, it sort of slowly edged up and edged up and edged up. And then when Kobayashi came in 2001, it really exploded with his jump from 25 to 50. And then from there, we, 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 it just kept riding. But it was in 97 when my brother joined me and I started my own firm, um, and we created the federation, the International Federation of Competitive Eating, which is now marketed under Major League Eating. And we really began pushing it. And that's when the sort of hosting vibe was created with me and my brother out there in the straw hat doing this thing. It was a very, very different time. No one knew about competitive eating. There really was no competitive eating other than kind of, you know, apocryphal uh, pie contests here and there where everybody figured they'd been in a pie contest, pie eating contest, but they really hadn't. But it, it, it sort of grew from there. 
You mentioned Kobayashi, George, and his importance in the growth of this and the the, the attention that it that it created uh, on television, on ESPN, um, in the American media, and you had this falling out with Kobayashi over 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 sponsorship and and contracts, and it's been a sort of sideshow to the Coney Island contest for the last few years, and you're sort of missing, you've been missing that the the two champions going mouth to mouth. How much has this sort of troubled you as you know, as a as a CEO of this or commissioner of this sport, wanting to have the best eaters in there and sort of getting hung up over what sounds at least to people who are just reading about it in the newspaper to be a sort of a quibble over contracts? Well, you know, it, it, I mean, I, I totally get where you're coming from. It's kind of like let's get the two champions going at each other. We've asked him every single year, and he always goes, "Yes, I'll do it if you give me exactly what I want, and I'm going to, you know." leverage everything against you but then he says i you know it's it it you know it's a typical struggle i guess you have two sides my side is that we have a contract with with all of the eaters and we developed it because years ago one of the competitors went to the 4th of july and then used his ranking um with the international federation of competitive eating to promote a rival hot dog brand literally the next weekend and i called the guys what are you doing you're 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 saying you're ranked this by the MLE, but you're you're promoting a, a rival hot dog brand the next week. I mean, it's embarrassing. I got called out by my client, and he said, "I'll do whatever I want." And I said, "Okay, but that's fine, but you're not doing it for me." And and so the reason that there's four or five hundred thousand dollars worth of prize money out there is because the sponsors put it out there in these contests for the eaters to win, so that they're you know that they are promoted. That's the engine of it. And what Kobayashi said was. And keep in mind that he made a very considerable amount of money to do five events a year. It was well north of of a uh, hundred thousand dollars to do five events a year. Okay, so he, he was never treated poorly. But then he said, "I want to come. I want the fame. I want the money. I want everything. But I want the right to compete against you. I'll start my own league. I will go to other contests that aren't you." So please promote me and make me a hero, and I'm going to use that against you. And so, I, you know, it just goes against the very fundamental purpose of having a league, which is to sort of promote it and use that to, to grow the whole thing. So, and I thought it was very selfish. And there's no, other, there's no other equivalent, I think, in major league sports where Tom Brady can go play for Canadian football when he wants to or something like that, right? But he claimed to be the victim and he got a lot of great press on that. And, you know, when you're the man, when you're the league, you're never going to get any sympathy. So I, I think that, in my opinion, he's been extremely selfish. But none of that matters because you come back to the fundamental issue, which is we want to see Kobayashi compete against Joey. And so we've asked every year, let's sit down. We'll figure this out. We'll figure out a way that you can get what you want and we can get what we want and we'll do it. And he goes, no, give me everything I want or I won't sit down. So, I mean, what can I do? But, uh, but I do agree with you. It would be a shame if Joey and Kobayashi never never square off again. George, I am always fascinated by the creative mind and where ideas come from. And you have a great pattern during the competition. You list titles. You use phrases. It's, it harkens back to a lot of traditions, including the carnival marker. But I wanted to know if you can, could you tap into, this is a tough question, but maybe you can answer, where do your, your ideas for these phrases come from? And the other one is, have you, what titles, the Manassas Mauler, the Splendid Splinter, titles from other sports kind of struck your imagination and you thought were great and maybe you brought uh, the idea of that to the world of competitive eating? 
Well, you know, Badlands Booker was created by Gersh Kunzman, who's a journalist for the Daily News in 97 for That's Badlands. Badlands. I always Booker. loved I was that. There. I always loved yeah. that one. Yeah, I was just going to say, I was uh, there on hand when he won a burrito eating contest. Uh, it was one of the highlights of my yeah. journalistic Yes, uh, yeah. of, of, your, of, your, of your journalistic history. Yeah. No, and Gersh is a great guy. And that, I always loved that one. Perhaps I thought that that is among the best. And I always loved... Um, Eater X, which was my idea for because I used to watch Speed Racer when I was a kid, and X Racer was like this mythical figure who always came in when needed. But you know, the the I always loved the Splendid Splinter. That's that's funny that you that you mentioned that one. Um, but I generally I don't like nicknames, and when you go to an event and there are eleven people competing and there are eleven nicknames, I find it like incredibly annoying, you know, Joe, the real meal, so-and-so. So I, what I do is I won't even mention all the nicknames because I find it, I find it diminishes the whole thing. So what I try to do, what I try to do, and it is absolutely my favorite part of this, is to find something that I find like an emotional truth. And I want to, I want to be clear that I have been called the false prophet because everything mm-hmm. I say up there sometimes is a lie, but it all comes true. And, and like everything we've done is sort of like just hyperbole, but then it, it, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But what I try to do is find an emotional truth. And I know that sounds really silly, but you really can do that. And, you know, when I'm talking about Joey and the, and the birth, you know, the birth myth or like the orphan myth with Tim Janice, you're touching on what is an emotional truth. And people in the audience, even though they know you're being silly, they still get the emotional ride out of it. And that's one of the, the most fundamental aspects of this, which is you can even say, I am joking. And people are still emotionally attached to this sort of like this wave. And so that to me is my absolute most favorite to do. And this year, my favorite, my favorite, I liked the Joey one very much. I liked the Eater X one very much. But I, my favorite one was... Somehow I was saying, like, the closest he's ever been to a goji berry is a Cheeto. And then I built around that, like, somehow I was just joking. And then my favorite line, really, of the last three years was he had a bucket of gluten and he eats it with a spoon. Because there's just so much, we're just so overwhelmed with all this kind of, like, I don't know, you know, overly politically correct, twee kind of food stuff and and, you know, Williamsburg kind of stuff and Brooklyn kind of stuff. I live in Brooklyn, but you know what I mean. So that one was my favorite. Isn't the whole enterprise of competitive eating and what you're promoting and what your your carnival barking up there um, sort of undergirded by the, the same philosophy as the way you talk about it? I mean, the reason that people like this is because it's so bizarre. It's so, you know, divorced from how we view and do eating. Yeah, and, and there is something, you're right, and there is something about eating which connects to people in a way. You know, when we first started this and, and it started to get successful, we said we should do this with X, Y, and Z. And, you know, we tried a bunch of stuff, and none of it really captured because there is something about competitive eating which taps into this, as I was trying to articulate earlier and didn't, that there's this kind of myth that we all were in pie-eating contest of kids and that America was founded on this, and there certainly have been, but we were not all in there. We may have watched the movie Meatballs or Stand By Me, but we really haven't been. And then, so anyway, there's this enormous goodwill, and there's this power to food-eating contests if it's part of our culture, which it is, but the ride that it has received uh, across the board is greater than that, than that reality. So there's something about food-eating which really works, and some of it is the spectacle of a number. You know, Mickey Sudo it's 104 hard-boiled eggs in eight minutes. It's just on its own it works. And then there is something also, the mix that works out there in Coney Island that we then leverage in other locations is this heroic, 
this kind of sense of everyone is a hero in their own way, mixed with comedy, mixed with the spectacle of the food eating, and mixed with everybody's, you know, the audience's interest with just like having fun and like being able to accept silliness. And it all sort of mixes together and it's been very successful. Yeah, it's hot dog in cheek and we don't have a lot of that in our society anymore. Okay, last uh Last question, uh, rapid fire round. Uh, maybe one more question from each of us. We'll see how many questions you can eat in one minute. Um, my question is most underrated eating contest food and most overrated eating contest food? Pizza, very hard to, to find the magic in it. Hard-boiled eggs has got to be, it's, it's the next great frontier in eating. My question, will a very fat man ever attain top rank status? No. My question the Black Widow, women, separate division now. Why aren't we unifying the sexes in competitive eating? Let me, just, let me just be very clear about this. I would prefer to see them all eat at the same table. It has been better for the women in terms of prize money, and it has been better for the women in terms of exposure because they, they were at third, fourth, fifth, and they kind of got lost. But for me, there, there was a certain charm and magic to having them all at the same table, and they are at the other events. But in this one, you know, I think, I think we're going to continue with this structure. All right, George, uh, thank you very much. Uh, you told us before the interview that you were not wearing a straw hat for this. A but boater, I, right? I could have just sworn that you were wearing a straw hat. I think it just floats <laughs> over your head, like three inches over your head at all times. <laughs> They're going to bury me with that thing. It is, it is a legacy for good or for bad. All right, take care. Thank you very much okay, for being with you. us. George Shea is the CEO of Major League Eating, the greatest sports organization in the history of mankind. Um, all right, let's do afterballs. There've got to be a lot of uh, competitive eating related afterballs. One thing that I noticed is that there was a lot of talk about gyoza in the ESPN contest. Um, why is gyoza such a popular competitive eating food? If only George Shea hadn't hung up the phone, Stefan. I don't know what what hasn't been competitively eaten. There were three on the records page. There were three different jalapeno-related records. So pretty much everything has been competitively eaten. One for poppers. One for pickled. Mm. Let's just do gyoza. Mike, what is your uh, gyoza? My gyoza is snub. You said you didn't know the Spando Ballet song Gold, so I'm just going to sing the one-word chorus to snub. Or maybe I could sing another soft rock classic. We are snubbed. Heartache to heartache. We stand snubbed. So the battlefield in question is not love, but the all-star team. And there is a perennial column to be written about who was snubbed from the all-star game. I'm going to acknowledge all the pitfalls of ever paying attention to an all-star game. It's voted by the fans and one of the worst shortstops named Derek Jeter. He's, of course, going to be voted in. And it's for half a season. And everyone has to, every team, even the bad ones, have to have a guy on the team. And we on Hang Up and Listen don't really cover who was on or who were off of all-star teams. And i got to say, thank God. Also, the whole game is the one game of the year that doesn't matter. I'll tell you this, when I worked for NPR, they always used to ask me to spot the All-Star game, and I would because I was a good employee, but I'm like, you know, if you had just asked me to spot Giants-Padres game 71 of the year, it would actually have bigger news value than the All-Star game, but that's fine. So then there is this column that is written by everyone who uh, follows baseball. I guess there is a demand for this column, and you write the column about who was snubbed from the All-Star game. Now, there's a decent way to write this column, and the decent way to write this column is to acknowledge, maybe you acknowledge, maybe you don't, 
all that's wrong, everything I said with the All-Star game. You don't have to mention that Mike Pesca didn't like spotting it when he worked for NPR. But so Jay Jaffe in Sports Illustrated does a fine job. Baseball fans care or some small number of baseball fans care about the All-Star game. And so you write, here's who's on the All-Star team. And maybe here's some guys who deserve to be on the All-Star team. And usually you get one or two guys like, hey, how is Ian Kinsler not on the team? And as Jay Jaffe points out, Jonathan Lucroy, I mean, this guy's having a great season. This guy deserves to be on the All-Star team. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the bad way to do it is from CBSSports.com, where Matt Snyder has written the All-Snub Team. And I just read the American League edition. So what he sets out for himself or his editor made him do, or the vast North America snub-consuming public demands that he do, is find someone who is snubbed, snubbed at every position. So, you know, some of them are logical, like Ian Kinsler. That works for second base. For first base, you have to assert that Steve Pierce was snubbed from the All-Star team. Now, the big question surrounding Steve Pierce is, of course, who the hell is Steve Pierce? Steve Pierce is a guy who plays for the Orioles, who's had fewer than 200 at-bats this year, and who is 11th in home runs. Not that home runs is the only statistic that matters in terms of offense, but, you know, from a first baseman, you do want a bunch of home runs. And then even if you do take more advanced statistics, yes, it turns out that Steve Pierce is doing relatively well. He's fourth in slugging percentage. He's in the uh, war category, the wins above replacement. He's second. But you can't say that he is snubbed if the guy who's first makes the team. You generally just can't say that Steve Pierce is snubbed. Going down the list, we also have this assertion. Who was snubbed in the outfield? Melky Cabrera was snubbed. Melky Cabrera was snubbed? Say it like follow the yellow brick road. Melky Cabrera was snubbed? You go. Melky Cabrera was snubbed? Melky Cabrera was snubbed. And in fact, Melky Cabrera was not snubbed. Because if we go to the list, I'm going to use the uh, world famous wins above replacement metric. Melky Cabrera among American League outfielders, the snubbed Melky Cabrera, the guy who could, should be playing in the outfield, he has a 1.0 wins above replacement, raking him 32nd among American League outfielders. This guy was snubbed. This guy isn't having as good a year as Colin Cowgill. And that guy's name is Colin Cowgill. Melky Cabrera was not snubbed. These guys weren't snubbed. I mean, it's hard to get irate about this. I think that I almost have because the underlying exercise is like, let's pick an all-star team and who cares. But come on, guys. There's a good way to write the snubbed article and a bad way to write the snubbed article. Now, I'm sure some other writer, maybe a guy from The Bleacher Report, just throwing that out there, has written another even worse column naming guys who were snubbed who've been out of the league for 45 years, you know, Cap Anson. And I haven't mentioned that guy, so I guess you could say that he was snubbed. Stefan, what is your gyoza? One of the most notorious games in World Cup history was played on June 2nd, 1962 in Santiago, Chile. How notorious was it? Well, here's BBC reporter David Coleman introducing the game, and he did it this way because the film had to be flown from Chile to England before it was broadcast. Uh, here he is introducing the game for his English audience. Good evening. The game you're about to see is the most stupid, appalling, disgusting, and disgraceful exhibition of football possibly in the history of the game. Chile versus Italy. This is the first time the two countries have met. We hope it will be the last.
an Italian took a full kick at a Chilean. A Chilean cold cocked an Italian who had just kicked him twice while he was on the ground. A few minutes later, the same Italian kicked the same Chilean in the head. Another Italian rugby tackled a Chilean. Armed police came onto the field four times to assist the officials. The referees sent off just two players. Both were Italian one of whom tried to sneak back on the field, which was pretty amazing, given that the Chilean punches were thrown just steps from the officials. Chile won the game 2 to nothing. The game, again, was played in Santiago, Chile. At various points, the play-by-play announcer says, there's one of the sorriest, most stupid, and most incredible spectacles I've ever seen anywhere in the world. That was one of the neatest left hooks I've ever seen. That was one of the worst tackles I think I've ever seen. And that was one of the most cold-blooded and lethal tackles I've ever seen. A few things jump out from the video. Photographers walking onto the field after Chile's goals. An Italian player putting up his dukes to fight after the game ends. And the referee escorting the evicted players off of the field. I say evicted because in 1962, there were no cards issued to players who were sanctioned for foul play. Yellow and red cards wouldn't be introduced at the World Cup until 1970, after they were conceived by the ref of that Chile-Italy match, Englishman Ken Aston. Aston was the head of referees at the 1966 World Cup in England. The day after England played Argentina, Aston got a call from England player Jack Charlton, who told him that Charlton had read in the paper that he'd received a caution from the German referee, but Charlton said he'd had no idea because the ref didn't speak any English. Driving home from the game, Aston looked at the traffic lights and thought that yellow and red codes could avoid any miscommunication on the field. That night, the story goes, he told his wife his idea. She went into the other room and came back with a yellow card and a red card that could fit in Aston's pocket. Aston was a groundbreaker on other refereeing fronts. He came up with yellow flags for the linesmen instead of team pennants that were normally used. He came up with number boards to indicate substitutions. He was the first ref to wear black with white trim, replacing tweed jackets, white shirts with French cuffs, and knickers. And he came up with having a substitute referee on hand who turned into the fourth official who could hold up the board that indicated the substitutes. Aston also took a shine to the growth of youth soccer in the United States in the 1980s. He ran refereeing clinics for ASO, the American Youth Soccer Organization. There are Ken Aston camps for budding ASO refs. Over the weekend, the Ken Aston Cup for referee training was held at ASO's big summer tournament in California. Ken Aston died in 2001. I hope lots of yellow and red cards were raised in Aston's honor this weekend. Not so many at the World Cup, though. Yellow cards down. Josh, what's your gyoza? So if you've watched any World Cup game for at least five minutes, you've surely noticed that the camera always seems to find a beautiful woman or 10 or uh, 20 in the crowd. There was this amazing moment in the Iran-Nigeria game in the opening round where the camera is taking a wide shot of the crowd and then zooms past and around about 50 men and somehow manages to find a blonde woman who had previously been hidden in the third row. It was the greatest athletic feat in the World Cup so far. Uh, this kind of ogling is not unique to international soccer. Of course, you'll recall that ESPN's Brent Musburger slobbered over Alabama quarterback A.J. McCarron's girlfriend, Catherine Webb, during the 2013 BCS title game. But you have to go back 40 years prior to that to find the origins of what TV producers call the honey shot. Legendary ABC sports producer Rune Arledge, who brought Monday Night Football to TV, is largely credited with bringing cheesecake to televised sports. But it was Arledge's director at ABC, Andy Sedaris, who liked to take credit for combining sports watching and the objectification of women. 
In an interview in 2003, Sedaris said, I was the best television director that ever lived. If he said it, then it must be true. Uh, But his list of accomplishments is impressive. He directed the first episode of Wide World of Sports in 1961, and he also directed ABC's Olympics coverage between 64 and 1988. According to the LA Times, he also helped develop instant replay, slow motion, and split-screen views. He also loved to show beautiful women during his broadcasts, often to a fault. The book Go Fight Win, Cheerleading in American Culture, includes the following description of Sedaris's direction of a 1979 Monday Night Football game. The Cowboys were practically invisible. The Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders were seen everywhere but on the blimp. In 1983, the New York Times' Neil Amder wrote the following. Andy Sedaris is one of ABC's better football directors, but at the Sugar Bowl, he seemed preoccupied with cheerleaders and a game that contained dimensions of much more importance. Sideline shots of cheerleaders and majorettes are only worthwhile if they are spontaneous and fit into a larger picture. Sedaris made them boring and finally offensive. Sedaris, though, was always unapologetic. In 1974, Sports Illustrated ran an item in its scorecard section detailing an interview that Sedaris had done with a newspaper in San Diego. SI wrote that Sedaris holds strong views about the looks of the girls he has seen around the country, noting that girls in Buffalo look like plant foremen, and that at Michigan, quote, the girls dress like old Joan Crawford movies. At Alabama, by contrast, only a real football fan takes his eyes off the cheerleaders. Colorado was also starting to show some beauties, according to Sedaris. Turns out they're getting a lot of California girls, and that makes a difference. (laughs) He also noted that there was a cutoff line for beautiful California girls, and that was in Bakersfield. Uh, In a 1976 documentary called Seconds to Play, which is a behind-the-scenes look at how an ABC college football broadcast gets put together, Sedaris explained his philosophy to one of his colleagues. You know, that's the one thing that I loved about going to college. I was a girl watcher when I was was three inches high. I was a girl watcher. I came out and said, my God, it's frightening. Look at those women out there. Every one of them need to be kissed and hugged and and taken care of. How'd you get the idea for Honey Shots? I got the idea for Honey Shots because I am a dirty old man. Okay, because I turned uh, 17, I remember I was, it was terrifying. Every time I look at a girl, I just tremble. And I thought, if I'm like that, maybe other people are like that. And you know what? They are. Yeah. They sure as hell are. There's also a bit in this documentary in which Sedaris asks for, quote, front shots of some of these broads. This would be considered a hostile work environment, although the documentary seems to suggest there were not any women within a 50-mile radius of the ABC Sports crew. Uh, Sedaris eventually left sports television and found his true calling, directing B-movies starring Playboy Playmates and actors like Eric Estrada and Pat Morita. AndySedaris.com describes his formula as, quote, beautiful people filmed in exotic locations with an unapologetic amount of explosions, gunplay, and Playboy Playmates. The Chicago Tribune quotes a representative piece of dialogue from his Bullets, Bombs, and Babes series. I'm really a Secret Service agent. I thought so. You give great Secret Service. I was just pausing, pausing there for dramatic effect. Speechless. Sedaris died of throat cancer at age 76 in 2007, but his legacy certainly lives on in sports television. Every time you see an instant replay, slow motion, or especially a slow motion instant replay of a cheerleader. You can also buy the Girls, Guns, and G-Strings 12 DVD movie set for just $9.98 plus shipping and handling on his website. It'll make an excellent companion to the soft rock compilation. Uh, soft rock, soft core. Buy it today. Combo pack. We love your feedback when we talked about it today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. 
We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at Slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and listen in iTunes. You can find us at iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. Leave us a comment and a rating when you're there. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Hang Up and Listen. Our intern is Chris Laskowski. Our producer is Mike Folo. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.